We come now to the high spot of our programme, the event which this concert is really all about. In other words, the presentation of the New Musical Express Awards to the artists voted the most outstanding in popular music for 1965. And I'm delighted to say that, as usual, we do have an international celebrity to make the awards on our behalf. And to introduce our star guest today, I'd like you to meet the organizer of our concert, the man who dreamed it all up and put it all together, and who therefore, I think, deserves a very real token of our appreciation. Your applause, please, for Mr. Morris Kinn. Hello, everybody. Uh, it, it's with very great pleasure uh, that I announce to you the uh, name of the famous star uh, who is going to present the uh, New Musical Express Poll Awards tonight. Uh, he is now filming in this country in the, M in the MGM film The Dirty Dozen. Uh, you know him from your television screens as Cheyenne. Ladies and gentlemen, Clint Walker! <laughs> That's a real Western welcome. That's a real Western welcome, and I want to thank you. I'm, I, I know you've been... You know, I brought my horse along, and he heard all this noise in here, and he got so scared he took off, and I haven't seen him since. Anyway, I think they got a little program lined up here that I'm going to kind of help out with. I'd just like to say I'm glad to be here, and we'll get on with the program here. Uh... And ladies and gentlemen, to receive his award as runner-up world musical personality, and Britain's top vocal personality, John Lennon. John. And of course, Britain's top vocal group and the world's top vocal group, the Beatles. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. We're not working without. It's like that we're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. discontent with the Beatles.
Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 44 Welcome back to WOD Season 5, January 8th, 1969. The fifth day of rehearsals and the most productive so far. The mood is good, John is on form, and George has got the band to rehearse two of his songs. This episode will conclude the first and pretty much only rehearsals for I, Me, Mine, and then focus on some of the manipulations that are being done to the Beatles by the production team. We'll go back to eavesdropping on them shortly, but first a few housekeeping things. A podcast recommendation, Cautionary Tales with Tim Harford. In essence, an historical podcast, but so much more to boot. BBC more or less's Tim Harford tells some fascinating true stories about things that went wrong or simply got out of hand. Like, for instance, the two young girls who used a camera trick to photograph fairies and became a worldwide phenomenon. Highly recommended. My thanks go to the lovely WOD fans who contributed to the tip jar at buymeacoffee.com. Thanks must also go to the very kind listeners who answered my call to leave a review. So Eve Pop and Mike in Jeff Park, thank you very much. These activities work. Episode 42 got to number 13 in the music history charts and actually made an impact on the music chart. A rare thing. Please keep up the support where you can, share, review and tell your friends about the podcast, if you can. I'd love more people to see and hear what we've uncovered. Before we go back to Twickenham, here is a summary of episode 43. Paul returns to the piano to teach them the long and winding road. The tapes barely pick out the piano at this point. When the mics finally catch up with Paul, we hear John mocking the lyrics in the form of a commercial. George joins in. John asks for the chords so he can learn it. George wonders if they're supposed to be learning this song. The tape cuts and they now seem to be discussing continuing with I Mean Mine instead of Paul's second song today to be rejected. John urges George to get on with it. George responds back to John, you've got to dance though, then inquires if his flamenco section is copyrighted. No one responds. Before they can rehearse more, Ringo asks for a few minutes to oil his squeaky drum pedal. George asks to play quieter and comments that he likes the Binson Echo effect. Paul quotes George's first composition, Don't Bother Me, and George tells the story of its origin. He then relates that a few months ago he met Royston Ellis, poet and old associate of the Beatles at the traffic lights, and how he'd introduced them to their first drugs. George finally counts off a run-through of I Me Mine, Johnny's vocal in his approval of the drums. George changes the word freely to easy since he's not sure about it. George wants another run-through, John who is dancing is sarcastic saying he's living for the day but George retaliates by pointing out that John and Yoko aren't holding each other correctly to dance. Michael approaches, he loves the waltz idea, although Paul jokes that they'll do it in a white bag. Michael considers it very Brechtian. We learn Michael wants to call the live show January 20, 1969. 
He seems more open to the idea of staging the show at Twickenham, especially as each song could have its own theme. He sets out his vision for the show with the Beatles surrounded by their audience or on at least three of the four sides. I mean mine rehearsal pauses while Michael discusses the ideas with Paul and John. They seem unimpressed. He talks about the different types of song and suggests they end with a weepy. When Michael restates the date of the show, John sarcastically states that it'll be 1982 before they finish, a comment on their current work rate. He's now testing John's patience but seems oblivious. Paul asks about the audience. Michael suggests the first 1,000 people who show up. He also suggests voiceovers before each song but doesn't get much buy-in. Paul does seem to approve of his ideas but Michael is unsure if he's being serious. But Paul reassures him it seems like a format has finally been decided. Paul suggests gantries above the audience to film them but Michael wants something more intimate. With the show format nearly decided on Michael still reminds them that he'd prefer an amphitheatre. Paul does have a reservation stating that the concept seems a lot like their 1964 TV show Around the Beatles. Michael agrees that they're almost in competition with their previous triumphs. Michael thinks Glyn Johns did the sound for Around the Beatles. We find out that he didn't. But to Paul this explains Glyn's connection to IBC Studios. As George plays piano in the background, Michael and Paul camp it up. John begins to give his answer in song, but Michael stops him saying, he always does that in lieu of a straight answer. Aboard, John then plays Sweet Little Sixteen with his own made-up words. Then he plays a little Spanish guitar of his own, Malagueña. Michael reiterates he wants a weepy ending, but Paul repeats John's statement that they intend to write a couple of rockers. John breaks into Chuck Berry's almost grown, bringing the discussion to an end. Glyn can be heard asking Paul what rocker they played on the first day. Paul has no idea and asks the rest of the band. Ringo suggests the one on your bass, which probably means get back, but they're not sure. So let's rejoin them now on the Twickenham soundstage. Following on from his other Chuck Berry performances, John breaks again into rock and roll music. He's gradually joined by Ringo George and briefly Paul. Glyn is talking to Paul about a rock and roll number that they did on the first day, but he can't remember what it was. In a portent of his future role, Paul suggests he listen through all the Nagra tapes till he finds it. Michael, presumably talking about the same thing, says, You knew it anyway. Glyn replies, No. Rudimentary waltz drum beat signifies that Ringo is ready to rehearse I Me Mine. Once again, the PA has stopped working during the break. George muddles through without it. 
John's guitar is still present on this performance. John apologises for losing his way. Glyn comes over the talkback asking if the PA is switched on. George picks up where they left off once again, rehearsing the transition to the flamenco section. Just do that from that bit. One, two, three, one, two, three. John adding a touch of Malagenia to George's chords. George wants to start again. Uh, from the top first. Uh, now, George. Is it? No, it's not. Something wrong out there. Not this one. Glenn interrupts, telling George the PA is on. George disagrees, calling Glenn babe perhaps recalling the camp interaction between Michael and Paul. George counts off another run-through. The vocal sounds rather tired now. One, two. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. One, two, three, one, two, three. At this point, John plays a solo where the second verse will be. George counts off another. George's mic dominates the mix. George likens the symbol part to Richard Harris's MacArthur Park. An idea is forming in Paul's head. The shuffling cymbal part could lead to a rock bit, inspired by what John plays at this point, a brief boogie lick. That sounds like it'd be a good sort of rock bit. But it gets out of the idea of the waltz. The first one is... And the bag Yeah, you're doing da dang da dang Paul joking with John about playing in a bag. 
tape cuts. Not sure if much time has passed, but Paul is demonstrating his idea. George reasons that an extra section to the song means he'll have to write more. Paul explains that they'll just have to sing My 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 over a 12 bar blues. This is exactly the kind of middle section George had talked about avoiding in the morning. Paul describes the harmony as a beep beep harmony recalling the backing vocals on Drive My Car. Tape cuts again. Quality dips at this point. Further developments on Paul's idea. They're now singing My My Me Me Mine. George is singing I I while Paul is singing My My. John is still on guitar. George and Paul debate the best line to sing. Paul is more focused on how the lyrics sound rather than what they mean. My my me me my. My my is like good to sing. Those, I, I, me, it's me. like ma ma. It's good. Ma ba. I I me me. I I is more than Latin. It's not as easy to do. Ma, it's like night is easy to sing. Ride. The ma is easy to. Like, uh, ma, ma, ma. easy to I shout. But it'd be. What's yours? My, me, mine, is it? I, it's I, me, mine. I, me, mine. Ah. has gone off again. George is audibly frustrated. They've gone off again. Ringo instinctively knows he has to play fills at the end of each line. Like, you know, the last chord. 
Paul plays through the middle section at a faster tempo to get to the point where he can explain to Ringo where he needs to stop. Following Paul's lead, George tries the middle section at a faster speed. At this point, after the new middle section, John is playing his solo. George now adding the guitar part he will play on the finished recording. This time they come out of the middle section into the second verse. Yet another run through, this breaks down before the second verse. This tape is also not very good quality. And then suddenly fidelity is restored. Another run through, really just tightening up what they have. Part of this performance is used in the Let It Be film.
song, while very polished, is very short, but they are satisfied enough to move on. The Hindu holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, contains the following text. They are forever free who renounce all selfish desires and break away from the ego cage of I, me, mine to be united with the Lord. This is the supreme state. Attain to this and pass from death to immortality. George was no doubt familiar with this passage. I kept coming across the words I, me, mine in books about yoga and stuff. Much like with the song Get Back, the Nagra tapes reveal some of the compositional process. In fact, one could argue I, me, mine is a Harrison McCartney co-write. George, as usual, has chosen some interesting chords for his new song. The song is in A minor in the verses, each chord voicing playing a kind of moving melodic line throughout the verse. A minor to A minor 7th to D to D 7th, G major to E major, resolving back to A minor. In the bridge, during this rehearsal, George plays a couple of nice diminished 7th chords, the 3rd fret sliding to the same shape at the ninth fret. On the finished recording, George plays this as a D minor, adding an F to make it a B-flat major 7th, before hitting that higher diminished chord again. The bridge resolves with an interesting descending line, built around a higher inversion of the A minor chord, moving the note from the 4th string down one fret at a time. While keeping the other notes the same, he lands on this ambiguous chord, F major 7th, where Ringo accentuates this with his cymbals. In his original demonstration of this song, and all rehearsals up to this point, he would then play a section in 4-4 time, alternating E major to F major, with the bottom two strings droning underneath, in a rough approximation of a flamenco guitar piece. But, as we have just heard, Paul and to an extent John both hear something in Ringo's cymbals that suggests the next section should be a kind of blues shuffle. What Paul comes up with is a shift from A minor to A major and a kind of boogie shuffle on guitar, much like a 12 bar blues, but only for eight bars, shifting to the four chord of D major for two measures and then back to A. But when the usual blues five chord appears, E, it is now in the form of George's flamenco inspired flourish. What is notable is that John actively participates in these performances, playing the melody on his guitar. Despite encouragement to dance with Yoko for this song's staging, he has found a role in the arrangement for his guitar playing instead. Edits of these rehearsals in both the Let It Be film and the Get Back documentary couple the later performances of I Me Mind to earlier footage of John and Yoko dancing, giving the false impression that John wasn't interested in playing on George's song. After a very productive morning, the Beatles have been very supportive of George, even despite his lengthy procrastinations and Michael's constant interruptions. They've worked the song up to a point where it could have been a real contender for the live show, rehearsing it no less than 41 times today.
returns to the piano to run through the long and winding road. By the voices, this is George. And again. Dennis O'Dell has returned and he's talking to Michael. Let's talk about using the gantries. Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary reveals that Dennis has some sketches of sets for them to review. Dennis apparently showing Paul one of the sketches says, Do you like that, Paul? Paul doesn't immediately respond. Michael giving a commentary on Dennis's movement says something about his felt body made its way through the equipment. After giving direction to George, responds to Dennis's drawing. That's around the Beatles. Describing the way the audience surround the stage. Either Michael and Dennis have discussed this in advance, or Dennis has had the same idea for staging as Michael. Dennis agrees. Michael says, It's a bit scaffoldy. The tubular construction material had been used in Around the Beatles and 1965's The Music of Lennon McCartney, another TV show that they seem to have forgotten. Paul explains the Around the Beatles set was like this drawing on two tiers. Show it to John, John will tell you about them. John, you have to about that. They're artists. They're artists, you know. C minor, A flat. Paul, conscious of how he's the focus for the director and producer, defers to John and Yoko. Firstly, to involve them in decision making, and secondly, to make use of John's increased energy today, and finally, to feed John's ego. As he says in Mock Liverpudlian, they're artists. He goes back to teaching George the long and winding road. A lot of the conversation is obscured by the piano at this point, but the boom mic does pick up Michael talking to Ringo about his reasons for not wanting to go overseas for the concert.
they they feel that at least they could get to the show, you know, even though they were there, they feel at least there's a, you know, possible that they could be there. If we're sitting there amongst... Tape cuts. He says when Neil Aspinall had phoned him about the options for staging the show, i.e. here or abroad, Maureen and he discussed it, and she suggested do it in England. As he puts it, she digs the band, so she's speaking as a fan. Michael offers, because of the audience? Ringo explains, it means more here than in America. Ringo feels the Beatles need to do something for a British audience. Their last concert performances in the UK were in December of 1965, which, as we know, in Beatles years, is decades. All credit for this bit goes to Steve Turner's book, Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year. London's Covent Garden, once a thriving wholesale distribution market, had by the 1960s become a bottleneck of traffic congestion and was earmarked for redevelopment. However, its cultural significance remained. The Covent Garden area boasts, even to this day, 13 theatres and over 60 pubs and bars. In support of the theatre industry, Ian Albury, manager of Donmar Hire and Sales Company, acquired a lease of part of the old Woodyard Brewery in 1960, adjacent to a banana ripening warehouse in Covent Garden. Donmar, named after Albury's West End producer father Donald and his wife Margaret, created a rehearsal space for theatre productions as well as ballet and opera companies. The Beatles used the Donmar Rehearsal Theatre on November 20th and 21st, 1965, setting up drums, guitars, amplifiers and a Vox Continental organ in a manner very similar to how they would arrange themselves on the Twickenham soundstage, three and a bit years later. In fact, the Donmar was an equally cavernous space. Photographs taken on those days showed the Beatles dwarfed by their surroundings. As with their first day at Twickenham, no PA system was provided, so many images of the day show Paul, John and George tightly huddled together in order to hear their vocals. The purpose of this gathering was to rehearse an 11-song set for their upcoming UK tour. Fresh from the intense recording sessions for their new LP Rubber Soul, the two days of rehearsal tightened the once road-weary band into a cohesive unit for probably the last time in their touring career. The songs chosen for these concerts were, in this order, I Feel Fine, She's a Woman, If I Needed Someone, Act Naturally, Nowhere Man, Babies in Black, Help, We Can Work It Out with John on keyboards, Yesterday with Paul on keyboards, Day Tripper and I'm Down. Less than two weeks later, on December 2nd, the four Beatles with Neil Aspinall left their meeting point, William's Muse in Belgravia, in a black Austin princess driven by their chauffeur, Alf Bicknell, and began the lengthy journey to Berwick-on-Tweed. This stopping-off point was where they would spend the night at the King's Arms Hotel, undisturbed with the hotel staff sworn to secrecy. On the following morning, they continued their journey to their first engagement in Glasgow, some 130 miles in the driving rain. It was on this journey that George's spare stage guitar, his Gresh Country Gentleman, strapped precariously to the trunk of the Princess, became dislodged and subsequently crushed underneath the wheels of the following traffic. George at this point was very much living in the material world, 
and made his displeasure known. Some people would say I shouldn't worry because I could buy as many replacement guitars as I wanted, but you know how it is. I kind of got attached to it. The tour started in Scotland and logically headed south with each engagement. From Glasgow to Newcastle upon Tyne, Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield, Birmingham, two nights in London and a final performance in Cardiff on the 12th. 18 performances in nine venues, all theatres and cinemas. Not the size of audiences that the Beatles played to in more lucrative territories. The format of the show was the usual variety package. The Beatles appear at the end of a roster of support acts. The Moody Blues, the Paramounts, Beryl Marsden, Steve Aldo, the Kubars and the Marionettes. With the Beatles collecting £1,000 per performance, this was really only pocket money compared to their takings from the US stadium appearances. And may go some way to explaining why their UK live dates had dwindled from 188 in 1962, 117 in 1963, 50 in 1964, and now a paltry 18 in 1965. They also refused to do Christmas shows as they had the previous two years. It's not surprising, given the rapid decline in UK concert performances, that Ringo, or more specifically his wife Maureen, feels the Beatles have neglected their British fans and would prefer they do a show on British soil. The Beatles' final UK scheduled live appearance was a 15-minute set at the NME Poll Winners concert at the Empire Pool Wembley on the 1st of May 1966. It was an ill-tempered affair. Having arranged to be at the venue just before their performances and to leave swiftly immediately after, Maurice Kinn, the NME's publisher, informed them that they weren't needed for another 25 minutes as the Rolling Stones were performing their set and then there would be an awards ceremony. John Lennon exploded with anger. He wanted to follow the Stones and upstage them. Kin advised John that he already had an agreement with Andrew Lugold, the Stones manager, who had shrewdly insisted on this running order. John was adamant, either they played now or they didn't play at all. Kin did not back down. He presented Brian Epstein with a stark reality. If the Beatles didn't perform, he would send out compare Jimmy Savile to explain that the Beatles were backstage, but refusing to appear. The likely result would be a riot by 10,000 angry fans, which NEMS, Brian's company, would be liable for, in addition to having to face a lawsuit for breach of contract. Backed into a corner, Epstein agreed to convince the Beatles to perform as originally scheduled. However, he refused to sign an agreement with ABC TV to allow them to film the performance, sadly robbing us and the TV viewing audience of the day of a record of the Beatles' final UK concert performance. Plastic. Might be nice. Yeah, I think I'll be able to break it down and have a, have a work. Because the idea is the plastic when you finish it. Yeah. 
Now that would mean casting the plastic, wouldn't it? Would it? That's only trouble about time. But I can have an army market department. There will be some kind of new stuff, you know, like Bakelite or something. It might be a material, but we don't have it. See, then it would be so, because we can do what we like with a vacuum. If, it was blocks, if you've got a lot of blocks made, you can yeah, build any fit in like a Meccano. It's just boxes, you know. Like Kubrick would do. Yeah, just big blocks. So that you could put blocks of plastic in any shape you wanted, you know. We could move the audience around. It'd be not much. It's nice to have the levels where they can dance and, you know, whatever yes. they want to do, you yes. see. Because, you see, if you had them above our heads, you'd have plastic we see above That's right, that's what I thought. That's, that's exactly the legs and all that. Yeah. Okay, well, it might work that way, you know. That's yeah. great. That's a good thought. That's a good thought, all that. I think all I want to do is get an art director down. Let's have a natter about it. See, we can't come up with another See, if you've not just got box-shaped plastic, you can build it that long if you want, or just have it that short. Yeah. And then, I don't know what about there, but that's their problem. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't think it was that. I mean, there must be something we can get that's a new material that yeah. looks marvellous and is almost... That's just the working out of the height scale, you see. I think if we try to cover all this and build cabins no, like and caves, it. it's nice, no, no, you see. No, Roll 87, wild, a camera. Okay, I think I'll grab this art right And you see, you could have our, our thing plastic too. Yeah, that would be knockout to do that. And then we could do what we like with the backing, have it go black yes. or yeah, yeah. black or stark or something, you know. And then we can control all our lights from a panel and we can have all the colours you like. Yes. Completely, you see, from one control panel. And you'll always be able to see us through everything. That's right, that's why it put me in mind of this, but I, I agree with you, the scaffolding's Scaffolding. not the right material. Yeah. It's oh, not the right material, yeah. yeah. But all that, it's just nice plastic, if we could do it in a new plastic thing. Okay, let me get... Roger, could you get, uh, ask George Jerkovich if he'd come down and see me a moment from the art department on uh, Magic Christian. I'll just get a yeah. We get a fragment of Dennis talking to John and Yoko about the set design. He says, the cavern idea didn't much work. Perhaps he means for filming. And he wants to talk in terms of see-through things, hence the scaffolding, we can only presume. John makes the same comment as Paul. This is around the Beatles. Dennis is asking for his input to the see-through concept. John suggests some kind of see-through plastic material. Dennis says he'll get an art director down and have a look at it. John would like to keep the plastic after. Dennis begins to think about the logistics of getting the plastic and says he'll have to have a word with the art department. Dennis seems to be still thinking of scaffolding-like structures made of plastic, as he says, like Meccano the child's construction toy. But Johnny's thinking more of blocks. But they both want two tiers for the audience. I do love Dennis's manner in dealing with the talent. He's agreeing with John, but somehow you can sense he's not convinced, but he will try to get a solution. He again suggests they involve an art director. Yoko is very quiet on this subject. you think she'd be more involved with this topic. John is explaining how plastic would work on the drawing, though there's one bit he can't make work. He just says, that's there, the art department's problem. Dennis is optimistic. It sounds like there's still a cavern kind of theme that Dennis is working on, but see-through and plastic. But John doesn't want all the studio paraphernalia covered up. Dennis does see the potential of using lighting in the plastic in the same way Tony Richmond has transformed the drab grey wall behind them. 
One thing's for sure, John doesn't want scaffolding. Whether the technology was advanced enough to do what John wanted in 1969 is debatable, but the concept isn't a bad one. A set that you could alter completely just with lighting is quite a modern idea. Dennis asked for someone from the art department to see him. John is still engaged with the discussion. He says, I'll just get a ciggy and we'll have a chat. Dennis, left alone with Yoko, tries to involve her in the discussion, but the mic moves away before we hear her reply. Scaffolding isn't new technology, even in 1969. For as long as humans have needed to reach up to higher stuff, we have devised ways to make ourselves taller. Archaeologists discovered sockets in the walls of a Paleolithic cave at Lesseau, which suggests that cave artists built a platform to paint the ceiling 17,000 years ago. Illustrations on what is known as the Berlin Foundry Cup depict builders in ancient Greece using a form of scaffolding in the 5th century BC. The technology remained largely unchanged for thousands of years until the 20th century when metal tubing appeared on the market. But more important still was the replacement of rope to connect the poles with clamps or couples. These originally arrived around 1913 and by 1919 the universal coupler became the standard allowing scaffolds to be erected around unusually shaped structures. Without these developments it's hard to imagine the audience for Around the Beatles standing on platforms supported by bamboo poles and rope. On that 1964 show, the Beatles and other artists played on a stage surrounded on three sides by a structure consisting of two balconies on the left and right side and a higher balcony to the rear, which served as a stage riser for Sounds Incorporated, who acted as backing band for the various guest singers. When the Beatles performed, they played facing each other and the balconies, allowing Paul and George to glance upwards wistfully to the gantries. The energy level of the crowd, allowed to be so close to their idols, is contagious. Watching the show 60 years on, you can still feel the excitement. Production designer Roy Stannard knew what he was doing, and made great use of the flexibility of the tubular scaffolding with a very 1960s brutalist approach. No attempt is made to hide the framework of the set or make it pretty. Fast forward to 1969 and tasked with helping design the staging for this new Beatles TV show, George Jerkovich has drawn up sketches of set designs that use the same exposed tubular framework idea. Jerkovich was currently ensconced in the Twickenham Art Department, working on his first motion picture production design, after a successful career in television. Although he doesn't appear to have done any more work on the proposed TV show, he would have been a great fit for the Beatles, working on shows with the Goons connection, much like George Martin and Dick Lester. He worked on Michael Benteen's It's a Square World, on Hancock's Half Hour, and on comedy shows featuring Eric Sykes and Stanley Baxter. Although Dennis O'Dell has been tasked with finding some kind of transparent plastic alternative to scaffolding, which very probably didn't exist in 1969, certainly not in a way that could support the weight of an excited audience, Michael is having serious misgivings. Despite Michael's earlier concession to staging the show at Twickenham after all, 
The prospect of repeating around the Beatles and building a scaffold around the group ignites him once more to push for his original idea of Sabratha and a Roman amphitheatre. This discussion will dominate the end of the day's recordings. George Jerkovich, who was of Yugoslavian descent, had studied architecture before moving into production design and progressed from the Magic Christian to key production roles on some major motion pictures. Never Say Never Again, the Bond film where, interestingly, he would work with Around the Beatles' Roy Stannard, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Highlander, Return to Oz. He designed the Ewok village in Return of the Jedi, utilising his flair with scaffolding to great effect. And in a curious circle back to Around the Beatles with its Shakespearean aspirations, he drew the artist's impressions for Sam Wanamaker's proposed reconstruction of the Globe Theatre in London. We're now back to Paul and George rehearsing the long and winding road. Then the boom mic catches up with Michael and Ringo still talking about the show. But Ringo's position has shifted slightly. He now doesn't seem averse to doing the show somewhere else for four or five days, but not the rehearsal. Michael is persistent. It's fascinating to see how Dennis and Michael 
both used gentle persuasion to move things forward. Michael hints to Ringo that he could bring his family with him, kids and all. Ringo and Maureen had left India the previous year, partly because they missed their children. Ringo says he's getting to the stage, presumably because the children are older, where he'd like to take them with him. Ringo is in two minds. He can envision a concert abroad, but only if it's all set up before they arrive and they just stay a few days to perform. But really, he still would like to perform to a British audience, as we said before, because he feels they owe it to their British fans. Michael feels he's getting somewhere with Ringo and wants a group discussion. Ringo laments he's easily convinced, which I don't think he sees as a good thing. Michael doesn't want him doing the show under duress. Ringo thinks they should exhaust all options at Twickenham first before going abroad. But time is against them, really. Ringo argues the amphitheatre set is only impressive for a short while and the novelty will wear off. Michael is still gently pushing Ringo to take his veto off and be open-minded while they discuss it. Uh, it's just that I, I mean, I really do think I'm a good person to do you because, I mean, like, I really dig you, is the phrase I said. And also, I've done so much of this, which is a plus. I just, I don't see it working here. I see us doing a good show here because it is you. And I was talking to Dick last year, and he said part of the thing is, he said, you don't need to go in this season because it is just the Beatles. And the answer is, sure, it's just the Beatles. But if it is going to be your last TV show, you're going to need to show you're going to be well, yeah, I'm just, no, but, but, no, I am, but, but it's not a, but, but the thing is, like, everything you do has got to be good, like, because all your albums are good, I mean, there's not a Duff album, I mean, I'm not, it's not only you as the band, it's not only them as songwriters, it is the four of us, and if, I'm not saying, like, you are into the world or anything like that, but, like, it's got to be the best, because, I mean, the hearts of millions are with you, you know what I mean, it's got to be the best, it can't be the best. Every time we do anything, Well, this would be easy. I don't see tidying this up at all, but see, at the moment, that scaffolding set and the tubular thing, it is kind of like four years ago, and there's nothing wrong with four years ago, except we're we can't match what we need. Anyway, like four years ago. Yeah, but, but suddenly all, everyone wants to be a rock and roller, you know. But like we're all 28 now, as opposed to, I don't mean that we're grown up in that sense. <laughs> yes, we are. We're all 28, or whatever, whatever we are, baby George there. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the audience isn't the same, life isn't the same, and I just find that this place you could, it could be rock and roll I think and also it could be this kind of but I don't think we could it could be rock and roll in in Tunisia or whatever you want to put it what was it called I care. it's either Tunisia or Tripoli Tunisia or Tripoli but I what about Gibraltar Michael tries to sell the amphitheatre idea, but by also selling himself. He says, if it's going to be your last TV show, referring to the discussions yesterday, Ringo cuts him off. Just because we were grumpy. He doesn't think the band are really breaking up. We've been grumpy for the last 18 months, he says, which must have been a bit wearing. Michael really is trying to boost Ringo's ego here to get him on side. Michael hasn't heard Dennis's discussion with John, obviously. He says, scaffolding is so four years ago. Ringo says, they're playing like four years ago, i.e. back to playing rock and roll. 
Michael reminds Ringo that he's not a teenager anymore, which doesn't go down at all well. As Michael tries to find negatives at Twickenham, Ringo counters that his other suggestions aren't very rock and roll either. Here we get an insight into a discussion with Yoko that we haven't heard about. He's suggesting playing in Gibraltar with cats and dogs as an audience. Michael is disparaging under his breath. See, I'd watch an hour of him just playing the piano. Me too. Uh, it's so great. But like, I think, see, I think we just got to find a place which would complement it. And I just don't see it being here on a stage with tubular scaffolding around it with the best one in the world. And it's the only reason, like, it may turn out we're going to do it here because he's in the middle. John is happy. I mean, the way it stacks up with the way it was, John was happy to go. You went, and those are the two posts. Paul was, I gather, in the middle, tending toward either side as he believed, and George was sending more your way. So it's quite a tough battle. But I think, we, see, the problem is I mean, we couldn't talk about it because of Russia. Yeah. And it's the four powers. And if Russia said no, then the conversation's out and you just in the bag, and, and, and you can't do anything with it. And I think if we now can talk about it, we may still discard it, but then we'll know we've discarded something better. warm comment from Ringo saying he'd watch an hour of just Paul playing the piano. He's so great. Again Michael has seemingly been put off the idea of Twickenham after almost conceding earlier. Maybe Dennis's drawings disheartened him. Michael evaluates the mood of each Beatle. Here we get to understand how Michael has codenamed the Beatles as the Four Powers with Ringo as Russia, George as France and presumably Paul and John as either Great Britain or America. His point is, if he can get Russia to agree to discuss their options, then at least the conversation has been had, and they still have the option to reject his suggestion. Ringo finally gives in. I don't know about you, but I found that exhausting. We'll leave it for now, and I'll see you next time for our season finale. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.